Chapter 14 The Essence of Simplicity Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and, finding him, he said unto him, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe in him? John 9, 35-36 This text is from the story of the blind man to whom Jesus had given sight. His account of the cure provoked the anger of the Jews and their rulers. And since the man could not be convinced to agree with them that the one who had opened his eyes could also be a bad man, they cast him out of their assembly. That act signified to him that he would be, or already was, cast out of the Jewish church, set aside from the synagogue, and made the victim of excommunication. This was one of the most dreaded calamities that could happen to a Jew and I don't doubt that this man considered it to be so. It's not likely that any of you are feeling the same trouble, but you may be suffering from something similar. It may be that you have excommunicated yourselves. Within the court of your own bosom your conscience has held a solemn court, and pronounced upon you a sentence which continually rings in your ears. You barely dare to mingle with those who assemble in the house of God because you feel yourselves unworthy to be among them. Up until lately you were on the best of terms with yourselves, and thought that all was right with God. You hoped that you stood on as good a foundation as other men, and even thought you were somewhat better than many around you. But now a process of enlightenment has come over your mind. You see practices to be seriously evil which before you regarded as amusement, and sin itself is seen differently than in former times. Are you such a person? Let me assure you that your state of mind is well known to me, because I knew it for many months. I too felt that I was cut off from the congregation of the hopeful and had no right to mercy from God. I didn't even dare to lift my eyes towards heaven. Instead, I complained to the Lord, like Jonah did, I am shut out of thy sight. For that reason I speak with brotherly sympathy to any man who believes himself to be a castaway, shut out from the house of the Lord. The man in the narrative, at the time when the sentence began to cast its gloom over him, was met by the Lord Jesus Christ, who had once provided the necessary remedy. Christ came as the consolation of Israel. Where he found men burdened in spirit, he performed his gracious work, but he offered one remedy, and prescribed only one way to obtain the cure. He spoke to the oppressed man concerning the Son of God and personal faith in Him, because this is the ultimate consolation for broken hearts. This is the surest and best way to bring joy to souls which sit in the dungeons of despondency. Our Lord began by saying to the outcast, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? Now, if any of you are in the state which I have just described, feeling guilty before God, lacking peace, with hearts alarmed at the coming and deserved judgment, I will come, in Christ's name, to you this morning with words of comfort. But they will be no different than those which Jesus proclaimed. I have nothing to comfort you but the Son of God, and Him only, by demanding that you believe on Him, because only as you receive Him by faith will He be a relief from sorrow to you. He who believes on the Lord Jesus will not be ashamed, but without faith you are without salvation. We will labor to bring you all to the point at hand. For you who are not yet a believer, there will be a direct encounter between the doctrine of the gospel and your soul. You will face the gospel, 
whether you reject it or accept it. You will know, if you can understand plain words, that if you believe in Christ Jesus, you will be saved. You will have the opportunity to decide whether you will do this or not, and either believe on the Son of God or rekindle the sin of rejecting the only name under heaven given among men in which we can be saved. Acts 4.12. You will be brought to this point if words can bring you to it. Then I must leave the work of your decision in the hands of God the Holy Spirit. I beg you who love the Lord and are faithful in prayer to aid me with your petitions before the Lord, that the result of bringing the sinner face to face with the gospel may be that he decides to believe in Jesus, that faith be given to him, that the Son of God may become the object of his soul's confidence, and that in no case the hearer may be left to continue in unbelief and reject the Son of God. You have seen at the mouth of the coal pits how, as the full wagons run down the incline, they pull the empty ones up to the pit's mouth, so they also may be filled. I pray to God that you who already have grace may exercise the power God has given you with Himself and, through persistent prayer, draw others to the Saviour. While we are preaching, you be praying, and God will work by us both. Look at the unsaved ones around you with an eye of pity. Then look to Christ your exalted Saviour with the eye of faith, and say to Him, Jesus, You who have redeemed countless numbers by Your blood, work now by Your eternal Spirit, and redeem by power. Let the Spirit who rested on Your own ministry, the Spirit who was with Your servants at Pentecost, the Spirit who has also converted us to Your truth, work mightily among the congregation this morning so that all these may be led to obey you. When your cross is lifted high, let it bring life to the dead throughout the camp, and be a lighthouse of safety to the awakened, and a pillar of hope to the despairing. The Matter at Hand In an attempt to be practical, we will, in the most direct way possible, lay down and define the matter at hand. With you, my anxious friend, the greatest and most important business that can concern you is that you find salvation. You do not possess it now, and your conscience tells you that, and even though you are well aware that you must obtain it or be lost forever, you still only have a small chance of ever finding it. You have sinned, punishment awaits you, and you cannot escape. The most important thing is for you to be saved, and if you are really awakened, you will desire to be saved from sin as well as from its punishment. You would not only escape from the consequences of doing wrong, but also from the inclination to do wrong, from the constant power and defilement of past sin, and from the tendency to sin again. You also desire to be forgiven, and by forgiveness to be set apart from the anger of a justly offended God, and be made acceptable to the Most High. And if you are in your right mind, you will desire for all this to be done really and truly not in appearance or fiction, but in deed and in truth. God forbid that you would ever be content with the name of being saved, with an external and professed salvation of outward rites and ceremonies, while your heart remains unpurified and your nature uncleansed. In some other areas of our lives we can be deceived and not lose very much, but in matters of the soul we must make sure, because if we are deceived there it's all over for us. Let me be cheated with cheap metal instead of gold, if you must, 
but not with error in the place of saving truth or deceptive ideas in the place of the works of grace. Let me be deceived about the food I eat, even if every morsel of it is adulterated, but don't let me be deceived about the bread of life which my soul craves after. Let me be true to my soul even if everything else is a lie. Do you desire salvation from the power and guilt of sin? And do you desire it to be thorough and real? Don't you long for it now? If God has awakened you, you desire to be saved at once, and tremble at the idea of delay. Sin is bitter to you now. It is a plague. The matter before us now is present salvation, personal salvation, to be realized for your own self. If there is such a thing as looking up to the smiling face of a reconciled Father in heaven, you want to enjoy it now. If it's possible for the load of sin to be removed from a mortal's shoulders forever, you desire to be freed of that burden this instant. If there is a fountain in which a man can wash and every stain will disappear, you long to plunge beneath its cleansing flood immediately and be made whiter than the driven snow. If your soul is awakened, I praise God, because there is nothing beneath the sun that can rival in importance your soul's salvation. Now the matter which I must press upon you is this. If you are ever to be saved, God has declared that salvation must come to you as a gift of His grace, an act of His free favor, and can only be received by you through your believing in His Son. As Christ consoled the man in the temple by saying to him, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? There is still no consolation, much less salvation, for you, except through believing in God's own Son. You have heard the story a hundred times of God's only begotten Son, who is the lover of men's souls, but we must tell it to you again. God will not save men because of their merits. If they have any merits, they don't require saving. If God owes you anything, produce the account and you will have it. If there are any obligations on God's part towards you, say what they are, and if they can be proved to exist, God will never give you less than you can justly claim. Unfortunately, my friend, if you are lodged where you deserve to be, where will it be but in the pit of hell? This being the case, you might as well be done with all claims and demands. God will only save you as a guilty person who deserves to be destroyed. He chooses to save you because He chooses to display the abundance of His mercy in you. By grace are ye saved is the unchanging purpose of heaven. Ephesians 2, 8 It is further declared that this grace will be received by men through the channel of faith, and by that channel only. God will save only those who trust in His Son. Jesus Christ the Lord came into this world and took our nature upon Himself, and being found in the likeness of man, He took the transgressor's place. The transgressions of His people were laid upon Him, charged to His account, and He suffered for them as if they had been His own sins. He was scourged, tormented, crucified, and slain. The stripes He bore were the punishment due to human sin and the death he endured was the death threatened to transgressors. Now, whoever trusts in Jesus will participate in the result of all the Redeemer's substitutionary agonies, and the sufferings of Christ will take the place of the believer's suffering, and the rewards of Christ will be instead of the obedience which man should have rendered. 
Faith in Jesus makes us righteous through the righteousness of another. It causes us to be accepted in the Beloved, perfect in Christ Jesus. As by the first Adam we fell, so by the second Adam we rise again. The way to take part in the benefits of the death of the Lord Jesus is simply by believing in Him. Believing in Jesus is not a mysterious and complex action. It doesn't require a week to explain what faith is. Faith believes what God has revealed concerning Christ, and it trusts in Christ as the divinely appointed Savior. I believe that Jesus was God's Son, that God sent Him into the world to save sinners, that to do so He became a substitute to justice for all those who trust Him. And, since I trust Him, I know that He was my substitute, and I am clear before God. Since Jesus died for me, God's justice cannot put me to eternal death, because Jesus, my substitute, has died for me. God's truth cannot demand a second payment for a debt which has already been fully paid on my behalf. The rationale of the whole thing is as plain as possible. Whoever in this world, old or young, Jew or Gentile, literate or illiterate, rich or poor, immoral or moral, trusts in Jesus will be saved. No, he is saved the moment he does so. But he that does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. John 3, 18. Let a man's character be what it may, but if in that character there is no faith, he is a lost soul. On the other hand, let that character be what it may, but if he comes to the cross and believes in Jesus, he begins a new life from that moment. God will give to him all the grace and excellence of character to adorn his faith, and his faith will save him. Trusting in Jesus, believing in Jesus, that is the matter at hand. I want to bring my hammer down on this anvil with every stroke, and if the Lord is pleased to place before me some heart that he has melted in the furnace of conviction, if any soul is brought to faith in Jesus, the work is done. To believe in the Son of God is the point and nothing else. A question which involves the whole basis of faith. Now, we notice that there is a question in our text which involves the whole basis of faith. The man said to Jesus, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe in him? All through the narrative, this man proves himself to be a very clever fellow. I don't know that Holy Scripture gives us an instance of a more common-sense man than this man whose eyes were opened. So when he is told that he must believe in the Son of God, he gets right to the point and says, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe in him? It's as if that was all he wanted to know, and then the faith would surely come. When a soul is seeking faith, this question is the main point, and the hinge of the whole matter lies there. This man did not say, Lord, who am I that I should believe? Not at all. That would have missed the point. If I read a story in the newspapers with questionable credibility, I don't begin asking what my own character is, but I ask who the authority for the story is. I don't look within, but I look to the person claiming belief. The story is true or not. It doesn't matter what I may be. My character doesn't concern the truth or falsehood of the statement. I must inquire into the statement itself. 
So this man did not make any remarks about what he might have been or might still be, but he hung the issue on this nail. Who is he, Lord, that I might believe in him? So all the arguments for your faith are encompassed in that question. You don't need to say, Who do I think I am that I could believe? I've lived a life that has been defiled with sin. I have gone from one transgression to another. I have resisted my own conscience, and I have stood against the gospel. It doesn't matter. There you stand with all your defilement, and God says to you, Whoever believes on the Lord Jesus Christ has everlasting life. That is the saving matter. Nothing more and nothing less. Will you believe in the Lord Jesus or not? You are nothing at this point. If God's witness is true, it is true whether you are a big sinner or a little sinner. If it's false, it won't be any truer if you are good or bad, worthy or unworthy. If Jesus is able to save, he should be trusted. And if he is not able, no one should rely upon him. The whole question rests on that. Nor should you raise any objections as to your present condition. You say, But at this moment I feel so hard of heart, I can't weep as some can. Repentance is hidden from me. Prayer is heavy, groaning work for me. Even when I am listening to the gospel, my attention is not riveted to the truth as it should be. I am lacking in everything good. I am void of everything that can recommend me to mercy. I answer, What of it? Suppose I tell a man that the sum of ten thousand pounds has been left to him in a will. Is there any point in him showing me his rags, his empty cupboard, and his wretched bed? Does his poverty make me a liar? Why does the man introduce such irrelevant information into the good news? Either it's true or it's not. This condition has nothing to do with the truth or falsehood of my declaration. If the man were wrapped in scarlet and fine linen, it wouldn't make my statement any truer. Even if the dogs lick him as they did Lazarus, that doesn't give him a right to deny my truthfulness when I tell him a fact. So, sinner, your condition has nothing to do with the question of whether Jesus is to be trusted or not. Scripture For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John 3:16. Will you believe in him? Will you trust the Lord Jesus? If you desire to trust Him, the question becomes, Is He worth trusting? But you have missed the point if you say, I am this or I am that. Isn't that true? I appeal to your own common sense. But I might go back to my old sins, one says. I can't trust myself. I've made some changes before and they haven't lasted. My ship set out to sea and went down in the first gale. With the temptations that will come, I can't expect that I will bear up and enter heaven. Now, what does the question of believing in Jesus have to do with your good resolutions or your miserable failures? Whoever trusts Christ will be saved. If you trust Him and are lost in the future, God's word will not be true. The question is can you trust Christ? And that turns around and makes the other moot. Is he worthy to be trusted? There is no other question. The case is something like that of a man in a faraway sea. His ship is wrecked and breaking to pieces. He barely keeps his hold on a piece of floating debris. Then the lifeboat comes up, close to his side, and is ready to take him on board. 
Now, if there's any question in that man's mind about getting into that lifeboat in order to be saved, the only rational one that I can conceive is, will the boat carry me to shore? Is she seaworthy? Will she outlive the breakers? Can she reach the land safely? You cannot imagine the poor fellow saying, I am shaking too much with a fever to be rescued by that boat, or the sea has washed the last rag from off my back, or the boat won't suit me, or another time I may be wrecked on the coast of Africa and there may be a lifeboat. No, no. Man alive, there's the boat. Is she seaworthy? That is the question. If so, get into her. If Christ is not worthy of your trust, don't trust him. And if he is worthy of all confidence, then be done with your idle questions and cast yourself upon him. Scripture If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God which he has testified of his Son. He that believes in the Son of God has the witness of God in himself. He that does not believe God has made God a liar, because he does not believe the witness that God has testified of his Son. And this is the witness that God has given eternal life to us, and this life is in his Son. He that has the Son has life, and he that does not have the Son of God does not have life. 1 John 5 9 to 12. Still, we will keep to this point. Jesus is worth trusting and worthy of the sinner's unwavering faith. He is worth trusting because he whom you are commanded to rely on by the command of the gospel is God himself. You have offended God, and it is God who came into the world to save sinners. Your sins were launched against Christ like arrows from a bow. But he, against whom those bolts were shot, has come in the fullness of his power and the infinity of his mercy to save them that believe. Can't you trust yourself in almighty hands? Is anything impossible with God? An angel could not save you, but surely God himself can. How can you limit the Holy One of Israel? How can you set constraints on boundless love or place limits on limitless grace? If Jesus were man and not God, unbelief would have a good excuse. But if the Savior is divine, there is no place for distrust. I feel as if I couldn't help but believe in Christ now that I know Him to be divine. Faith has grown to be a necessary act of my mind. Save me! Who will persuade me that He can't? Come forward, you demons, with your arguments, and plead with me. You cannot inject a doubt into my soul while I know him to be God. He can shake the heavens when he pleases and make the earth tremble. He holds up the universe on his shoulders. Can't he save my poor soul? Yes, he can. Who is he that I might believe in him? He is divine, and therefore I believe. Next, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom the sinner is commanded to trust, is commissioned by God to save. He came into the world as a Savior, not alone on His own account, but as Messiah sent of God. He has the full agreement of the sacred trinity. It is the will of the Father, the will of the Holy Spirit, and the will of the Son, that whosoever believes in Jesus should be saved. He was anointed by the Lord for His peculiar work. I feel as if this is special grounds for trust in Him. If Christ were an amateur Savior who had taken up the trade of saving on his own account, 
there might be a question. But if God has divinely commissioned him to save, why can you doubt any more? He has been authorized by the Eternal. Rest in him. Then there's the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ has actually done all that is necessary for him to do for the salvation of all who trust him. Years ago, before Jesus Christ came into the world, if I had been sent to preach the gospel, I would have had to proclaim, Jesus will take upon himself the sins of believers and lay down his life for his church. But now I have a more encouraging message. Jesus has carried his people's sins away forever, and he has suffered on their behalf all that was required to end their transgressions. He has paid whatever was demanded by the justice of God as a payment for the injured honor of the law. Christ has suffered the equivalent of all the sufferings of all the elect in hell forever. He has endured everything that was necessary, so God might be just and still the justifier of him that believes. The cup of vengeance is not full and needing to be drained. It is empty and turned bottom upwards. Jesus drank it dry. The works necessary for our redemption, much greater than the efforts of Hercules, have all been accomplished. Christ has gone into the grave, has gone out of the grave, and has gone up to his glory. He has entered heaven because his work is done. Now he sits down at the right hand of the Father in the position of rest and honor, because he has perfected forever all those who put their trust in him. Now, how can you refuse to believe in Jesus? To me, the argument seems impossible to resist. Since it's true that Christ has died, the just for the unjust, and that all who trust him will be saved, I will also trust him and find peace through his blood. The point we trust God's grace is bringing to you is this Jesus deserves to be trusted, and trust him we will, because he is full of power to save. He is now upon the throne, and all power has been given to him in heaven and in earth. We know he is full of power to save, because he is saving souls every day. Some of us are the living witnesses that he can forgive sin, because we are pardoned, accepted, and renewed in heart. The only way we obtained those gifts was that we trusted him. We did nothing else but trust him. If any soul that believes in Jesus would perish, I would perish with him. I sail in that boat, and if it sinks, I have no other to switch to. I vow before you all that I have no other hope. I don't even have a shred of reliance in any sacrament I have undergone or enjoyed, in any sermon I have ever preached, in any prayer I have ever prayed, in any communion with God I have ever known. My hope lies in the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. I shake off as though it were a viper into the fire, as a deadly thing only fit to be burned, all pretense of relying on anything I may be, or can be, or ever will be, or do. None but Jesus. This is the settled pillar which we must build on. It will hold us up, but nothing else can. Since by the authority of infallible Scripture we know that Jesus has this power, why is it that souls seeking rest do not obey the command and rest themselves freely upon Him? This is the climax of human depravity, that it rejects the witness of God Himself and chooses to perish in unbelief. 
Jesus Christ is by no means unwilling to save sinners. On the contrary, He delights to do it. You don't ever have to drag mercy out of Christ like money from a miser. It flows freely from Him like the stream from the fountain or the sunlight from the sun. If He can be happier, He is made happier by giving His mercy to the undeserving. When a poor wretch who only deserves hell comes to Him and He says, I have blotted out your sins, it is joy to Christ's heart to do it. When a poor blasphemer bows his knee and says, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, it makes Christ's heart glad to say, Your blasphemies are forgiven. I suffered for them on the tree. When a poor little child by her bedside cries, Gentle Jesus, teach a little child to pray and forgive the sins which I have done, the Saviour loves to say, Allow these little children to come to me, because this also is a part of my payment for the wounds I endured in my hands, my feet, and my side. When any of you come to him and confess your transgressions and trust yourselves in his hands, it will be a new heaven to him. It will put new stars into his ever bright and lustrous crown. It will make him see the fruit of the anguish of his soul and give him satisfaction. Don't we also have arguments to prove that Jesus is worthy to be trusted? Every sinner is bound to faith or unbelief. Every sinner is bound to either faith or unbelief. You are bound either to trust in Christ, in whom God commands you to trust, or to refuse to trust Him. I am not sent to preach to some of you, but only to everyone who has ears to hear. I have never learned to preach a restricted gospel to part of a congregation. The commission received by every true minister of Christ is, Go ye into all the world, and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. Since you are all creatures, the gospel is preached to all of you, sensible or insensible, spiritually dead or spiritually alive. As long as you are able to hear the gospel, one message comes to you all out of the excellent glory. Whoever will, let him come and take of the water of life freely. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. But I know what your course of action will be, unless the Spirit of God prevents it. Many of you will try to avoid the decision between believing and not believing, which I have put so nakedly before you. You won't like to say, I will not trust Christ. Yet you won't trust in Him. So what will you do? Why, you will yet again fall back on your old excuses, but I am such a sinner, I am so unworthy. I have already shown how that plea is not relevant and should not be thrust into the business. The question is one and only one. Will you believe on the Son of God? So why do you raise another question about yourself which has nothing to do with it? Yet I will meet you on your own ground and answer you. For argument's sake, let's agree that you are a special and horrific sinner. If this is true, then of all men in the world you are the man who should trust Christ, because it is written, This is a faithful saying and worthy of acceptance by all, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 1 Timothy 1.15 You have been a drunkard, a fornicator, an adulterer, a thief, 
In fact, a devil of a man. Well then, you've been a sinner. That's all it comes down to. And Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Therefore, instead of being shut out by your character, you are shut in by it. You are the sort of man that Christ came to save. You can't run away and say, He didn't come to save me because I'm not a sinner. You don't dare do that. It's very likely that you will turn around on me and say, My reason for unbelief is that I don't feel like I should. This objection should never be voiced. Because I feel a pain in my foot this morning, is that a reason why I shouldn't trust in an honest man or believe a statement which comes to me on good authority? I will, however, disprove this argument on your own ground. You are so sinful that you are, in all respects, undeserving. Well, Jesus came to save his people from their sins. Clearly, you are one of the very sort of people he came to save because you are full of sins. His salvation is all by grace, and since you have no good thing about you whatsoever, you are a perfect fit for mercy, free mercy, great mercy. Salvation, all by grace, exactly suits you. Since you are an empty vessel, then it's clear you want to be filled. Since you are a filthy vessel, you need washing, and Jesus proposes to both cleanse and fill. His proposal is exactly adapted to your circumstances. You are the very man for grace to bless. Ah, but, says another, I feel myself lost, utterly lost. What? Do we have to first do battle with some of you because you feel too little, and then with others because they feel too much? We must come back to our one fixed point and remind you again that both excuses miss the mark. That one point is will you or will you not believe in the Lord Jesus, whom God has set forth to be the Saviour of men? But even if you are crushed with sorrowful feelings, there are special reasons for your attention to the gospel call, since some invitations are especially directed to you, such as, Ho, every one that thirsts, come ye to the waters. And, If any man thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. If there are special messages of grace for you who are somewhat awakened to a sense of need, then I beg you to be quick to accept the testimony of God so that your souls may live. The one question for every unconverted sinner is, Will you believe on Jesus Christ? But I hear you saying, Well, I might do better in the future. I think I might, by some exertions of my own, get into a better condition. How can you hope so? Haven't you made a pretty mess of it up until now? You had better give up the vain attempt. If you have done so badly in the past, there remains little encouragement for you to try in the future. Let despair drive you to faith. The worst of your conduct is that you are going exactly contrary to God's plan. God says, I will not save you on the basis of merit, because you have none. That's really a gracious declaration of His, because it only shuts out false hopes, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. So if you say, I will seek salvation on the basis of works, you are flying in God's face. Is this wise? I would much rather recommend that you accept at once what He so freely gives. Follow the example of a person the other day in dealing with another. He wanted to purchase something from his brother. 
His brother had asked him a certain amount for it, and he said, I will give you half. No, said the brother, before I'll take so small a price, I would rather just give it to you. Thank you, I'll take it, was the immediate reply. This is what I would prefer you do. Don't offer your petty price to God when He is ready to give the blessing without money and without price. I have never known such fools as men are about the things of God. If they can get a good thing for nothing all the world over, they'll take it in an instant, and yet they rebel against free grace. Years ago, we paid twenty million to set free the slaves in Jamaica. But before the bill was paid, there was no end of objections raised in the House of Commons and elsewhere. Many people voiced their objections, but I never heard of a Negro appearing before the House to voice objections on behalf of the slaves. No black man came forward to say that the blacks were unworthy and undeserving. Neither did the slaves propose that part of the money should be paid by themselves. No, it's not in human nature to request others to put conditions on their free gifts in that way. Yet we reject all that is reasonable and want to encumber sovereign grace. When God says, I will blot out your transgressions now and save you once for all, only trust my dear son, it's strange, it's madness that men should invent objections and plead for a gospel with conditions and hard terms. So what will men do if driven out of this? I have often seen a sinner turn to downright falsehood and say, it's too late, even though he knows very well that it can never be too late. The gospel says, he that believes and is baptized shall be saved. It does not say if he believes when he is twenty-five years of age, or thirty-five, or fifty-five, or one hundred and five, but it stands the same for all ages. It is never too late to believe the truth, and that's the point. Dost thou believe in the Son of God? Then the sinner will say that he feels within himself that there's no hope. So, because he happens to believe a lie, he will think that God's truth is also a lie and refuse to believe that which God solemnly declares, that there is salvation in Jesus Christ. I don't have time to mention all these falsehoods, or to address all the schemes of men who seek to escape from their own mercies. In Pompeii I saw this motto on a shop door, Erne et habe bis. It means, buy and you shall have. I could only think that if I were walking the streets of the New Jerusalem, I would have seen a very different statement. He that has no money, come ye, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Now if a shop opened in London, in which all the goods were to be had without money and without price, would you quarrel with the shopkeeper and petition for an act of Parliament to shut his shop up and say it was wicked because you would rather go on the old terms and pay for all you have? Not at all. So why is it that you stand against free grace's golden motto, Trust in Christ and you shall have? Here is an instantaneous pardon, perfect pardon, everlasting pardon, sonship through Christ, safety on earth, glory in heaven, and all for nothing. It's the free gift of a gracious God to undeserving sinners who trust in Jesus. Never has an angel had a more gracious, more godlike message of mercy than I have. 
How I wish I could glow with a seraph's zeal, and cry with a cherub's voice while proclaiming it. I pray to God that men would leave their foolish reasonings and believe in Jesus Christ. Everlasting Things I remember well, when I was placed in a similar condition to many of you, when I knew myself to be ruined and undone, and heard for the first time, and truly understood it, the words, Look unto me, and be saved, all ye ends of the earth. I know how it stood that morning. I was like Naaman by the Jordan's shore. There flowed the flood. The old nature said, Are not Abana and Farpar, rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? Second Kings 5.12 Human nature said, I want to feel something. I want to have John Bunyan's experience. I want to have my mother's experience. I want to feel a broken heart. I want to groan more bitterly. I want to be kept awake so many more nights, and all that sort of thing. Suppose I had still resisted. If God's grace had not come in and made all that wicked pride of mine break free, I don't know where I would be right now, or if I would even still be living among men. I might be in hell, gnawing my tongue, because I thought it was a good idea, after hearing a plain gospel sermon, to reject the gospel when it was proclaimed. And all because I wouldn't believe what is indisputably true, and would not trust in him whom no one ever trusted in vain. I know there are some in my condition, in whom the good spirit will say, Wash and be clean. And the soul will sigh and say, It seems too good to be true. But the good spirit will reply, Are not my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts more than your thoughts? Isaiah 55, 9. Unbelief will say, Your sins are many. But the good spirit will answer, If your sins were as scarlet, they shall be made as white as snow. If they were red like crimson, they shall become as wool. Isaiah 1, 18. Then the heart will suggest, But I have rebelled against you, O God, for so long. And the sweet spirit of God will whisper, I have blotted out your sins like a cloud, and like a thick cloud your iniquities. Return unto me, for I am married to you, says the Lord. And I trust that, at this very moment, many hearts will say, Then I will simply rest my soul's salvation upon Christ, the Son of God, who is the only Saviour of the lost. From this day on I will never hope to be a self-saved man, or look to anything but him who on the bloody tree endured the wrath of God on behalf of as many as believe on him. If you trust Jesus in this way, as surely as you live you are saved. Go in peace. It is not I who speak these words from these poor lips of clay, but he who was nailed on the tree, whom all heaven adores, speaks this morning through me. He says to one, Daughter, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven. To another, he says, Son, your sins are forgiven, take up your bed and walk. Forgiven one, I urge you to do it, and as you leave this house this morning, saved and full of joy, tell others about it. Never stop telling others about it, and live to love him who has saved you. The other day I saw a picture by Rubens, in which he had painted Mary Magdalene kissing the feet of Christ while they still gushed with founts of blood on the cross. 
It was a strange picture, but I felt like if I had been there, I would have kissed them too, even though they had been crimson with his gore. Oh, blessed feet! Oh, blessed Savior! Oh, blessed Father, who gave his Son to be so blessed a Savior! Oh, blessed Spirit of the blessed God that led our wicked, proud hearts into obedience and trust in Jesus! Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has transferred us into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The Lord bless you. Amen.